Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. everybody and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. In honor of National Adoption Awareness Month, today we are speaking with Rebecca Volley, Executive Director from Family to Family Support Network, a pro-education nonprofit that focuses on offering neutral, compassionate care before, during, and after birth for quote-unquote unique families, especially those involved in adoption. And we will get more to the unique families in a minute. We also wanted to let our listeners know that we have made some major headway on our show notes and you can now get notes up to and including episode 39. We also want to say a special thank you to our patrons who have hung with us this year despite us getting way behind on our notes. We are always trying to improve and welcome any constructive feedback on how we can improve our listeners' experience. So you can submit feedback and become a patron of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast by going to our website, www.womancenteredhealth.com. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) This is great. First, we always ask our guest if you could provide a little information about your background. Sure. Thanks. So my background's in education. I was actually a sixth grade teacher, which is laughable when you think about what I do now. I feel like I can pretty much take on any healthcare education because of that. But it was actually an experience I went through as an adoptive parent that brought me into educating within healthcare, just realizing that there was not standardized training around how to care for what we call the wedding and the funeral in the same room with infant adoption. And so about 2001, I started training within some um, healthcare providers here in Denver, just south of Denver. It was the beginning of a very long journey trying to implement more and more resources for healthcare providers now across the country with our new nonprofit. I shouldn't say new, we're six years in. So, well, awesome. So, could you also, you kind of got to this a little bit, but could you also talk about what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? Yeah, that's a great question. It was our own experience as adoptive parents, but it was also when I started teaching classes for waiting adoptive families. And I started hearing just mixed reviews about what they were going through in hospitals around Denver. And what was so interesting is there would be a family that went through a delivery like on a Tuesday at a Denver hospital, and they would just have a glowing review. And then I would talk with a family who did a placement on Friday, exact same hospital, and they had a really difficult time. And it really came down to the staff and how comfortable they were. And I just became really passionate because I would hear this criticism about the way that healthcare was managing and handling these infant adoptions. But then I found out there's no training around that. And that just really felt unfair to me. It just felt like you can't criticize people for just not having information. And so I became very passionate about getting information in the hands of nurses and doctors because they were like, I don't know what to say. And I want to know what to say. It wasn't malicious, but they just didn't have the information or the tools to be able to care for this kind of really complex emotional situation. 
Well, we are very excited to get those tools and information into the hands of nurses and doctors. And and admittedly, this is something that, especially speaking for myself, that I I also don't know much about. So Stephanie and I were really excited to be able to talk about this and celebrate Adoption Awareness Month by having having you on this month. So before we get into all, all things adoption, can you first share with us a little bit more about your nonprofit? Sure. So I ended up actually creating a program at Parker Adventist Hospital just south of Denver. In 2004, they opened and they had already heard I was teaching families that were waiting to adopt newborn care and CPR classes and stuff. And so they asked me to come and bring my classes. And I said, what I really want to do is I really want to help during adoptions in the hospital. I always joke, I'm kind of a wedding coordinator for adoptions. Like it's the big day and no one knows what to do and emotions are high. And and so Parker was willing to allow me to come in and just kind of step into that space. And I became the quote unquote adoption liaison on the floor at, in the OB unit, labor and delivery in the birthplace at Parker Adventist. And it was just such a powerful position because we also found that we were meeting women earlier and earlier in pregnancy and really empowering them in their decision-making and making sure they had the tools they needed either to parent or to go ahead and pursue an adoption plan. And so in 2011, I actually went to Washington. I received a congressional award and it was then that I actually found out we had the only hospital-based adoption support program in the nation. And so I thought, I can't keep this to myself. (laughs) Like there was such amazing outcomes that were happening. And I was getting feedback from hospitals around the country that they needed the infrastructure we'd created. And so um, in 2015, I quit my job. (laughs) Thank goodness I have a husband of faith who was like, I agree, you should quit your job. Uh, But we just really felt called to share this model around the country to make sure that families and healthcare providers were empowered to have these great outcomes. So Family to Family Support Network began in 2015 and and we're uh, finishing up our fifth year. And it's been just phenomenal seeing how things have shifted. So much of the model um, of care that we created around adoption overlaps into all so many other unique family populations. And so now we're able to go in and teach through the template of adoption, but really empower healthcare providers to care for all those families that are kind of going through that process that doesn't fit your typical mom, dad, baby delivery. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk about, I know when we were on the phone during our screening call, you talked a little bit about specifics, like kind of the things that you were hearing or seeing in the in the hospitals as far as, you know, communication about adoption. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, I really think that because we don't have a standardized education about scripting with adoption, how do you interact with patients, waiting families if they happen to be on scene, it really puts everyone in the position to just quote unquote wing it. And that's the phrase we hear most often with our doctors and our nurses around adoption is they just kind of wing it. And if they feel really comfortable, it's usually because they have some type of background in it or they've got, you know, their adoptive parents themselves or maybe they're a birth mom, whatever that might be. But when you go into healthcare and you wing it around something as emotionally complex as adoption, it really makes for just a whole variety of experiences, which is difficult, especially if you've got stories of 
you know, woman that goes in with an adoption plan is, and is decided this is what is best for her and her child, and then has nurses push back and say, you know, you don't have to do this. I can teach you to breastfeed. Because a lot of times it's the nurses don't know how to really care for them in that model, or they haven't been kind of directed like, no, you need to be neutral and compassionate. And we, I've actually had a presentation at AWAN this year called You Don't Get a Vote. And it's really about stepping out of that space with adoption and making sure that you are neutral and compassionate. You may be the only person alongside that mom that is not telling her what to do. And so when you start addressing a national kind of issue like this, you get phone calls all the time and emails. And we've heard stories of women being pressured to parent. We've We've heard stories of women being pressured to choose adoption. And really, we want to make sure that we are empowering our patients and that we're make, ensuring they have voice and choice the entire time they're in the hospital. And so we have heard a lot of stories, and it really has crafted our curriculum to make sure that we're helping nurses find that sweet spot of patient care, we call it, where they can keep their own biases and beliefs and moral compass and thoughts around this, this concept of adoption out of patient care and that they can move into that neutral space with that patient to really empower them with their voice. So I'd love to move through that. And so I'm wondering, could you give us some more specifics on like, maybe let's first start with what's currently happening? Like what's current language? How are folks communicating? What are they saying? And I think that also helps our listeners relate to being like, oh, wow, I've, I've said that, you know, and then maybe talking about why that's problematic. And then how do we move through and provide better communication? No, that's great. So I think a couple of things, as far as what is being said now, I think there are some different approaches. One of them is I need to get in and get out of that patient's room because I really don't know what to say to her. And so we really believe that when we're uncomfortable, we tend to lessen our clinical care because we don't want to say the wrong thing. And that's probably the number one thing I hear from nurses and doctors. Like, I don't want to say the wrong thing. And so what are some things you can say? You know, very similar to bereavement. That's one of the best ways that we can reframe the care of a woman considering adoption because yes, she's choosing this, but she's going through a loss within this time of delivery and afterwards and then saying goodbye to her child now, it's complex with openness because she's saying goodbye to the role as mom, but not necessarily with openness, goodbye to the child. So it's more of a role shift, but incredibly difficult regardless. So we always encourage our nurses and doctors to just think in that template of bereavement that you're not going to fix what you're seeing her go through, but you're going to move alongside her and, and ask things like if she's upset to say, you know, is there someone I can call for you? Can I put the do not disturb sign up on your door? You know, did you? want some more time with your baby? Do you want some less, do you want less time with your baby? Like we don't know how she's grieving. And one of the biggest recommendations we make is really to allow our patients to move through that process, no matter what it looks like. And one of the most common things I hear from nurses is, well, I'm just afraid she's getting too attached. And it's like, she's attached. She's been carrying this child for nine months. So when you look at that concept, when we absolutely let our patients run that grief process, over the 10 years that I ran the program at Park Grade Venice Hospital, I only had one time when a nurse didn't come to me and say, Rebecca, I don't think she's, I don't think she's going to do it. I think she's changing her mind because they would see so much more emotion 
when she was allowed to really embrace that time in the hospital. And I think it's really hard for us to watch a woman grieve and know that we can't fix that for her. So I think that's one of the, t- the tips is just to be aware that you already have the tools to care for a woman considering adoption because you have tools around bereavement. And we've changed the way we handle bereavement over the last you know, 20, 30 years. And hopefully we're going to continue that change and be able to reframe women that are choosing adoption to also know they're going through a loss in the hospital. Um, the other piece is making sure we, we really hope to meet with patients early on before they have like jumped in with both feet into an adoption plan, because we want to make sure that they are empowered to say, I want my hospital time. I don't want a prospective family there. And a lot of times what's happening now with the internet is we have matches taking place. And because of that, they're making plans before and sometimes don't even realize that she doesn't have to have that family at the hospital. That is something that's completely up to her. And there's times that I've talked with with moms that have said, well, they just asked me when I wanted them to come. Not if I wanted them to come, but like, do when do you want them here? Do you want them here during delivery? Do you want them to come afterwards? But the option of not having them there is often not presented. And so we always want to make sure that they know that flexibility in their plan is key. Whatever changes they want to make as a patient, they need to be able to make those. Wow, thank you. Yeah, that was all really good. Before you had talked about how the language we use, like giving up a baby. Mm -hmm. And and it's funny because ever since we had that conversation, (laughs) I've been like, well, how do you, you, we've been so programmed to say they're giving up a baby for adoption. You see it everywhere. And so since then I've been brainstorming, like, I wonder what she's going to say. So I would love for you to talk about how to talk and what's a, what's a better way to say giving up our baby for adoption. Yes. I'm so glad you asked that. So we talk a lot in our training with healthcare providers about accurate adoption language. So it's not necessarily quote unquote positive. Like we're not trying to make it unicorn and rainbows and easy. Instead, we want the language to reflect what we're hoping the patient's actually doing. So when we're having a conversation with a patient and she's considering adoption, we would talk with her about not, are you giving up your baby, but are you considering placing your child? And so when you think about the old model of adoption, and this is when we kind of look back at healthcare and know that they didn't need adoption liaisons, you know, because the woman gave birth, the baby was whisked away, she was told to forget it ever happened. And the baby usually went to a social worker and was like handed off in an office somewhere to adoptive families. Sadly, we also know that those babies were often matched with those adoptive families based on looks. So they wouldn't even necessarily have to tell that child they'd been adopted. So there's a lot of secrecy and shame that was embedded in so much of the language that we use. I don't know how many times I've heard a mom say, oh, I could never give up my baby. I love my baby. And so we think about the words giving up and we give up stuff we don't like, we don't want that aren't good for us. Sometimes joke, we give up crack and smoking. We don't give up babies. Like, you know, that concept is so the antithesis of the heart of a woman that's choosing adoption that often she's like, I have looked at my situation. I've looked at this relationship. We know the average age of a woman that makes an adoption plan is 24 so it sounds very different when you have these conversations because they're they're looking long term and saying I'm not in a position to be able to parent right now. So you'll even hear that I'm not saying is she keeping her baby? That's another term you hear people say a lot and I always laugh at the word keep because it is the most passive verb there is. Like I can keep something and put it in my pocket 
totally forget it's there. It goes through the wash. I find everything covered with ink, whatever, like whatever it is that I'm passively keeping. When we talk with our patients, we talk about their parenting plan. And when I've talked to patients that have said, you know, oh, I'm keeping my baby. Oh, absolutely. I know you're parenting. Let's talk about your parenting plan. And within our program, we talk about bringing those resources together so she can absolutely be empowered to parent based on the resources that are available to her. And so when you start moving out of that passive one step, keep or get rid of, and you move into adoption plan versus parenting plan, that's much more empowering. And so those are two terms that we use a lot. We want her to be placing that child for adoption. We want her to be intentional. She knows her options. She knows the families that are available. And that's one of, again, the hopes in meeting women early in their pregnancy is that we can really have those conversations and really empower her to say, you know, is this what I want to do? Am I able to take care of this child? What options are available to me? I always say education and access is how we have empowered decision-making. If I know about it and can't get to it, it doesn't help me. If I can get to it, but I don't even know it's available, that doesn't help me. So the empowered decision-making, that is also coupled with empowered language that we're using with our patients. And we have a lot of other um, recommendations, like you don't have an adopted child. I have a ch- I have three kids that came home through adoption, but them being adopted children, we don't use that, that language. We use child-first language. Their children, yes, they came home through adoption and their needs are different because of the trauma they experienced, even though they came home as babies. That's a whole other Oprah as far as training is concerned, but really making people aware that, you know, that's a piece of their story, but even shifting our language in that way can be helpful. So say, this is a lot of amazing information <laughs> so early in the recording. Like I'm like, oh, wow, I feel like we could just be done. It's so good, but I also want to learn more. So we're going to keep going. Like, but man, you just jam packed that first like 15 minutes. <laughs> so you just, like Nicole asked you, you you talked on our trainer call about that phrase giving up a baby. What other terms do people use about adoption that are troublesome? Yeah, I think probably the most common that I hear is people talking about her putting up her child for adoption. And when we think about wanting the language to reflect what she's actually doing, if I put something up let's say for auction, I put it out there and I have no control of where that child ends up. Like that's not how adoption works these days. And when we think back, even with the term put up for adoption, we actually know that's rooted in our history here in the United States with the orphan trains and even discussion around slavery trade that these kids, especially with the orphan trains, there were over a quarter of a million kids that traveled from the East coast on orphan trains. They were cleaned up, got new clothes, were handed a Bible, names were pinned on their shirt. If that name fell off and they were pre-verbal, they'd lose their identity, which is devastating. But they would get on these trains and they'd be sent across the country. And they would stop at train stations where there had been an advertising poster. And we train all this in our overall curriculum because it's so important. This is where the language came from. The kids would get off the trains and they'd be put up on train platforms. And the families would come from around that area around that county, 
around that train station and they'd come and pick kids off the train platforms. And it was devastating the fact that they wouldn't work to keep siblings together. So there's lots of stories about orphan train riders trying to find one another after the fact, but they would load those kids that weren't picked back up on the train. They would take them to the next stop, take them out, line them up, put them up on the train platforms. Families would come pick, pick, pick. So that's where we get that terminology of putting babies up for adoption. Then we think about the next shift that happened, which is something called Baby Scoop. And Baby Scoop, it was actually named by women that went through it. And this is the time in our country when women were sent away to maternity homes. So if she got pregnant, she's in high school, she would go ahead and all of a sudden her aunt was sick. She was put, you know, put in the car and sent off to her aunt's house. And, you know, when you talk to these women that have gone through this, I used to have a radio show and have done interviews with some of these women and they were like, oh, everyone knew, (laughs) but it was all this secrecy and shame and the boys, there was no consequences for them. But the women were just shipped off to these maternity homes. Actually, Denver was a hub for them because we were so centralized here um, out west. Quite a few women came here to Denver and were put in maternity homes. They'd have fake rings, fake stories. Uh, Sometimes they would say that their husband was off in Vietnam. And this was all between the passing of Roe versus Wade into as late as the 80s. I had a friend of mine that went through this in the 80s. And so they were told that they were to have the baby, that the best thing for that baby was to not have contact with her, that that baby was going to a married couple. There was a lot of punitive responses to them that they you know, didn't deserve to see that baby. And that baby would go and again, be matched with a family. And so during Baby Scoop, that's where we have all of these closed adoptions. This is why we have so many people that are looking for children that they lost to adoption you know, in 1968, in 1974, you know, and they are searching for their children. And what is interesting is that shift to open adoption actually came from the voices of those moms that said, this isn't okay. (laughs) I need to know where my child is. And we hear stories of them just walking around and thinking, okay, he would be like, you know, 36 now. And, and is that him? And, and could that be him? And could that be him? And then once they started talking about how much they needed to know where their children were, the adoptees said, wait, I want to know where my mom is. I need to know my history. We know the number number two hobby in the United States is genealogy. And so why would adoptees be any different? Number one's gardening, by the way. I don't know who does that. Not me. Anyway, but number two is genealogy. And so we know that adoptees want that information too. And so that's why we've seen so many people come forward. We know that there were 4 million women that went through Baby Scoop, 2 million in the 60s alone. And it's a huge secret piece of our history. The women that went through it carry this often to their death. It's not uncommon for people that have, after their adoptive parents pass away, they're digging through papers and finding out that they were adopted. Many of them wait till their adoptive families pass away if they find out sooner because of that divided loyalty. So this whole generation now is speaking up and we're learning to do this better. And we're learning that we can have a palms up approach to adoption that my child can be loved by his birth parents and us and his birth grandparents and his grandparents and his aunts and his birth aunts and all of us can come together. And that just wasn't the mindset when you're talking about the end of the 20th century. I'm so emotional over here. (laughs) Are you really? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh, Rebecca, like you're, 
I mean, we're not even like 25 minutes in. <laughs> oh, I was just thinking about all of my relatives who are adopted. And like, I have a cousin who he would, I guess he would be born in 81 or 82. Mm-hmm. And he knew his, his biological mother. But like, I feel like before that, like nobody knew that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, and that was, I just remember like, that was very unusual that he, that he knew that. I can't believe that today, today at, at my age, that I am now hearing about adoption trains yeah. and what these were. I mean, I had no idea. So where, where did these children come from? Like, I, yeah. I feel the need to know more and explore more about these trains because this is so impactful. Yeah. Do you want me to talk more about that? Yeah. Yes, please. Okay. Yeah. So what's interesting is that it really came from the huge number of immigrants that came in the East Coast from basically around 1869 to about 1929 is the window of time from the orphan trains. And so there were so many kids and so many street children that it was having a huge impact on New York City. They had 10 to 30,000 street children homeless, you know, in the early 1900s. Because of one, we had so many, again, immigrants coming in a small space during a, a short amount of time. But then on top of that, they also didn't have any family members, extended family members to help in any way as far as um, the family was concerned. And so they had kids as young as six that were actually out and were working for the family and trying to earn money. There were 4.3 million immigrants that came in. So 1841 to about 1860. So just less than 20 years, 4.3 million immigrants. And you think it wasn't like they were coming in a huge border. They came in that East coast and so it had a huge impact. And again, the church got decided to get involved. There was actually their first step was to create an orphanage. There's the New York Foundling Hospital in 1869. The um, Sisters of Charity, that's one of my favorite stories because they had $5 to their name and a white cradle in the foyer. And that was like it. <laughs> They're like, we shall save the children. But the first day they opened, they received their first baby. They had 44 the first month. And after two years, they'd received 2,500 babies into the New York Family Hospital. And it was they were just full. And that's actually when we see our first, the first glimpse of foster care, because they started asking families around the New York Family Hospital if they could take a couple of children. Like, could you take some? Can you take some? Will you foster these kids? Because we don't have space. The other piece is there were a lot of families and a lot of mothers that left notes with their infants when they would drop them off the New York Foundling Hospital. And when I train, I talk about two notes specifically that that end with the child's name because it's so important for their identity. But when you think about 2,500 babies, you just have to wonder if those notes were able to stay with those infants because here are these mothers pouring their hearts out. You know, one was basically saying, I'm dropping my baby off to never have back again. And this is his name. And the other note said, I'm going to give money to the orphanage. Please take care of my child. Now, 
we don't know if that baby stayed there at the orphanage, if that baby went out into foster care, if that baby was put on a train. The other piece of the orphan trains is that there were um, families in the Midwest, they could actually order children. (laughs) So they could say, I want a three-year-old little girl. And they could let the, you know, Reverend B. Van Arsdale is a gentleman that used to um, help with the Children's Home Society that did the orphan trains. He could go ahead and contact the orphanage and say, okay, we need a three-year-old little girl. And they would get her all decked off and they'd put her into the, onto the train and she'd be taken to the home that was waiting for her. And so some of the kids landed in homes that, you know, were really positive and they were taken in. And, you know, I always think of the story of like a ma that has three boys and she's like, oh, pa, I just want my little girl, you know, and the little girl sent on the train out to be there and, and all is right with the world. But a lot of them were just used for child labor. And so we know that's when you talk about outcomes, it's difficult to really nail it down because we know that there were the outcomes of, yes, they found families, but then did they stay with the families Were they happy there? Were they used as labor? Were they just doing kitchen work or farm work? And that's where you hear a lot of mix of the stories. That is really sad, obviously. It is. So I'm wondering how those, that history now has, is presenting today. Because other than having friends who have adopted children in a clinical setting, I actually haven't seen that. So you know, I'm just kind of wondering how that kind of all fits together, the history of that and how how that works with today's policies. Yeah, that's a great question. So it's interesting in the fact that, as I mentioned, the birth parents and the adoptees really spoke up and said, this isn't working for us. This whole idea that I can be taken from my parents or my mother and be placed in another home and just I'm a blank slate and I'm just supposed to jive with that family we really know that's not the case. <laughs> you know, I think there's with Adoption Awareness Month and and knowing this was originally for raising awareness about kids in foster care. And now it's kind of become multifaceted. We know that there's a lot of celebration around adoption, but there's also a lot of adoptive voices that are saying, you're celebrating my loss. You know, for, for me to be in this home, I lost my home. And that idea of the sweet tension of sadness and joy is something we see from the very beginnings at the hospital. And so being willing to acknowledge all of that and to hear from the birth parents and the kids to say, I, I don't have genetic mirroring in my family. I don't know where I get these traits. I don't know. Everyone talks about how much my niece or my cousin looks like my aunt, but I don't have that. And so There's so much ambiguous loss around that, that now that we're looking at this open concept, I don't think openness fixes everything. I probably will have some critics telling me that that's not something to say, but I'm in the generation where we were really guinea pigs. I mean, my kids are now 18, 20, and 22. They came home to us as infants. One, we were in the delivery room, one we met at four months, one we met at three months, or I'm sorry, four hours and one at three months. And so All three of our kids came home very, very young, but that doesn't negate that they lost their families. And I think that we have to be really honest about that because in voicing that, we're allowing our kids to voice that. And we've always been really, really open in our house, probably because of the work that I do. And and I did have a radio show where we talked adoption all the time. And I would come home with these, oh my gosh, I 
interviewed someone, you know, through foster care or a birth mom or someone in baby scoop. And so we always had a really open discussion at our house, but for us, we also came out of infertility. And so when you come out of infertility, welcoming home a child, you have the biological child you never had. They have their birth parents they're not being raised with. And so there's a lot of ambiguous loss. And I think that's a huge piece that's finally being verbalized. We're finally saying those things. I, I feel like with our family, we were told like, just do open and everything will be fine. And I think that that was just a huge uh, misrepresentation because there's healing in the wholeness of the story, but it makes the story front and center more, much more often. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. My knowledge is so limited. Like, so I think of open as like, you know, who you're right. It's just identifying information. Okay. Okay. That's, that's all that makes it open, but that's the frustrating Uh part is that the only definition for the word open adoption or the words open adoption is that, you know, identifying information about each other. What it doesn't say is how much contact you're going to have. So a couple different ways to frame that. I think about, I joke about the word sick. Like I can, my husband could be home sick. He could have a cold or he could have cancer, but we use the same word, right? We still say he's sick and I can have an open adoption with all three of my kids sets of birth parents, but they all look incredibly different. Like one of them is super involved. One of them is not, we've got pictures from one, but we don't know a couple of the birth parents, like but everyone knows who everybody is. So that makes it an open adoption. And that can be really tricky when you start setting expectations. I mean, when else do you ever have a situation where you meet someone and you say, okay, I'm going to give you my baby. Now we're going to talk to each other once a month for the next 18 years. And we're going to see each other on the birthdays. And we're going to like, when we barely know this person, (laughs) we're like at the beginning of parenting. And so it's such a bizarre situation. In some ways, I think of it like in-laws. Stay with me on this. That sounds weird. But the idea that you have a mutual love for someone, but it's not like you're with that person, but you didn't necessarily pick their parents. And so It's complex because not only when you're married, you come in and you're blending two families. When you talk about marriage or you talk about adoption next to that, you're actually blending, you know, the birth father and his family, the birth mother and her family, your, your story as an adoptive mom, your extended family, your husband, his extended family. And we put it all together with this little baby in our arms. And then we say, just do that. It'll be fine. (laughs) It's just, it's complex because it's all also built in, built around grief and loss. And so a lot of the things that we've put in place when I mentioned healthcare and it's really crafting the story for those adoptees. We use um, a book called Forever Fingerprints, which is by Sherry Eldridge, who's an adoptee who has written many, many, many books that have helped so many adoptive families understand the heart of an adoptee. And it's a picture book. And it's about an eight-year-old little girl who's making sense of her adoption story. And so, because her aunt's pregnant and her parents tell her that she was never closer to her birth mom than when her fingerprints were created. And so when, when she misses her birth mom, she kisses her fingertips and she holds her birth mom close with her fingertips. 
So at the hospital, when we were going through placements, we would do fingerprints with the baby and with the mom. And the mom would sometimes write a letter in the front cover of the book. And it was kind of a way to send that book home with the family to say, the baby's coming with you, but so is this story. And it also was helping that mom say, I'm giving you this because there's a story to be told. And we're giving you a tool to take home with you to start telling your child their adoption story. And sadly, we've had some moms that have passed away since they placed their children. And I happen to know those adoptive families have books with their child's birth mom's fingerprints in it, a letter from her talking about how much she loves her. And so you can't provide that if you're not acknowledging the grief and loss that's happening around adoption in the hospitals. You're killing me. I'm bawling again. Oh my gosh. Like this is, you know, of all that, I mean, this is our 40 nth episode. I did not think that this would be the one that would just like (laughs) blow my mind and break me. Oh my gosh, Rebecca. It's hard. It's hard stuff. I'm so glad that we're doing this recording because I mean, my mind is just it's absolutely blown and this is so beautiful this book and and painful all at the same time well and I and again I think that when we're gonna when we offer these these children their story we have to honor and represent both right so one of the things that happened recently is I got a call from a family that wanted to know if I'd be willing to to get together with them at the hospital and their daughter had been born there and she was about probably seven or eight. And she just wanted to come and see where her mom gave birth to her. And so I said, absolutely. So we walked through the whole process. We, and her mom took pictures. We went through the emergency room where her mom came in. We went upstairs. We knew which room she'd been born in. So we went in there and her, her mom scooped her up and in, you know, cradle position and just rocked her. And was like, I held you like this. And her daughter just melted into her. And then we went downstairs and her mom said, you know, right here, there used to be a couch. This is where I met your mom for the first time. And her daughter just like went over to the floor and got in fetal position and just laid there. And she went and sat next to her and rubbed her back and just let her be near her mom. And we have to acknowledge the loss that our kids have gone through, that it's everyone know it's adoption day and there's joy, but there's such loss in that connection and how do we honor that for everyone that's involved? And, and sadly, adoptive families have been kind of late to the party to say, yes, I want my child to know their whole story and I want them to be as whole as possible. And what can I do to help them do that? That's beautiful. I can't stop crying. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Sorry. No, no, this is so good. And I, and I think part of it is that you know, when you think of adoption day as like a family who's having this child added to their family and how much joy there is about that, mm-hmm. totally. we totally overlook not only like this mm-hmm. grief and loss part of, of the mother, but also of the child. And I don't think mm-hmm. that's something I've ever fully embraced. I was going to say the same thing. Like I always think about my friends who are the adopted parents and then not really thinking about the child. And what language was used with, you know, now I'm wondering like, oh gosh, what is happening? You know, I've done labor and delivery, but I've never, we've never had an adoption situation. So I've never navigated that personally. Mm-hmm. So 
now I'm starting to realize just how critical that is. It's huge. Well, and you think about times that you've gone through loss or you've had a patient that's gone through loss. And if it's handled poorly, you can Mm -hmm. come back to them 20 years later and say, what was your hospital time like? And they can say to you, this is what happened. And this is what a nurse said to me. This is what a doctor said to me. And they can tell you word for word, because I really believe in that raw grief that we go through. Words that are said to us are just etched on our hearts. And we all know, if you know someone who's gone through a miscarriage, you can ask them, did someone say something to you that that ended up being hurtful? And they're like, oh yeah, this person said this, and this person said this, and we just know. And then you think about the weight of that for a lifelong decision like adoption. And you think about the fact we're not training healthcare professionals on any of this. It's the makings of really disastrous placements. If you ask me, like the damage that can be done and it's not malicious. It's not because people want to step in and say the wrong thing. They're just not being told and they don't know how to frame the situation to know how to best navigate it. And where else in healthcare care do we do that? Yeah, I think you just summed up why we started our podcast, sort of. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, just how important our words are. And like you said, adoption, miscarriage, like some really important times in people's lives happen in reproductive health care. Totally. And people who are in have infertility, same thing. Like I hear that mm-hmm. all the time. Like, oh, this doctor or nurse said this to me and they remember it for years. And it yeah. could just be yeah. like to that nurse or that physician, like they probably said that to a lot of patients, unfortunately, right? and don't even think about it. And again, it's not that they're being malicious. It's just that they don't stop and think sometimes or, or even know what to say. Right, right. And that's really what we found out. We just, we realized that this whole kind of mindset was really being lost. What worries me even more now is that because so much is happening on the internet, we have moms that are going in to do an adoption that may never even tell the hospital they're doing an adoption because they may be told to keep it a secret because they're afraid of what, how they might be treated. And I mean, again, the stories that I heard, I, I just read one on the, on Facebook just the other day. Someone messaged me and she was telling us that she had a nurse that came in that was like trying to convince her not to choose adoption. And she said, I, this is what I'm doing. Like, you know, this is, I've decided this. And that nurse went and got another nurse who had, who was a birth mom who had gone through a, a difficult adoption. And I have no idea if it was five years prior or 30 years prior she came in and sat on the woman's bed and tried to talk her out of out of choosing adoption. And then they finally put a sign on the door that just said, we're choosing adoption for this child. And if you are not supported, do not come in here. And I thought, how difficult to make this decision anyway, but then to have people push back and push back and push back. There's so much power in that. And why, why push back? I mean, if we really... One, I think it's lack of understanding. I think it's lack of support services. I think lack of training. They just, and I think whatever they're carrying with them, and I don't know the history of these nurses, but I know that they felt like my personal experience has to change your outcome, but you don't know anything about that patient. You're not leaving with them. You don't know why they're choosing this. They may have been in counseling last six months to come to this point. 
So when you take that situation, it's really hard not to let your personal stuff get involved. If you've never been told, don't let your personal stuff get involved, whatever that might be. But we just never define that around adoption or actually unique family care in general. Well, for sure, I'm looking forward to the day when we can record the episode where you talked to where you talk about the neutral and compassionate care because I think that that's mm. after listening to your stories and this episode, a thousand percent, we need to do that episode because it is extremely critical. And I also love, I mean, I don't love the history of adoption. That's a genuinely terrible history. But I think this is a lot like when we look at structural racism and maternal totally. mortality. And then totally. if we're going to uh, address maternal mortality, we have to mm-hmm. recognize the history that got us there. And I think, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize this about adoption, that when you see these issues that folks who are whatever side of adoption they're on, we're not looking at at historically, how did we get here and why are these things problematic? And so I think, Mm -hmm. I mean, this has been very illuminating and moving for me to recognize how, I guess I just didn't know how, how heavy and laden the history of adoption was in, in getting to how we are today. Yeah. And I think we're at a really pivotal place in adoption right now, when you talk about unplanned pregnancy and abortion and parenting and adoption and so much happening on the internet, I know that if I don't have a really good network around my hospital and I have a mom that comes in with a folder that just says, I'm doing adoption, the family's on their way. (laughs) And all of a sudden this is all going down and she chooses to parent. I better have the tools and the resources to come alongside her and say, okay, you want to parent that baby. Let's make sure you're successful. Let's make sure you have all the resources you need. What we don't want to have is have her walk out the door without a parenting plan and then have that baby taken out of her home into foster care and then have someone work with her. That doesn't make any sense. We know kids in foster care $50,000 a year, and it usually takes them up to a year to get out of foster care. So we don't want to use that model. So how do we bring ethical adoption resources into prenatal care into that time in the hospital that we're also balancing with the parenting resources so she can make an empowered decision and not come back and say the dreaded words I hate, which is, I just didn't know. And I have so many moms that came to me making decisions in unplanned pregnancy that said, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't have done that if I would have known. And that just breaks my heart. Yeah. So that was kind of, I have like all these questions that I ran down, <laughs> but I'm trying to figure out how to, some of them are not necessarily relevant. And I mean, to our audience, this is why we just have to do a happy hour and we all just need to get on and do a virtual happy hour some Friday. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> when we about you know especially like with the with the new supreme court justice and our media and the politics about roe versus wade you know obviously with abortion also comes the thought of you know why don't people adopt right their children so i just was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experiences and why a pregnant person would choose adoption and why they wouldn't Sure. No, that's a great question. I think probably one of the biggest misconceptions out there is that she shouldn't have an abortion. She should quote unquote, just do adoption. And I think after watching for 10 years, women go through this decision from ages 14 to 42, I served women that were choosing adoption through that whole span. 
there's no, there's nothing just about adoption, nothing just for the adoptee, for that mom, for the family welcoming that kiddo home. Like there's no just. So we need to pitch that for sure because it's a lifelong complex journey for all of us. It's just, it's, it is different. People want to say, oh, it's not different. It's different. Like, because it's just a different beginning and acknowledgement is what brings wholeness and healing. And so I think that's number one. I also think that people tend to think that adoption and abortion are side by side because they are the two non-parenting options on what I kind of joke as the choice buffet. And so people just equate that if you aren't ready to parent, you should choose one of those two. I think that's another reason. And as far as stories, I've just seen, I have seen people making decisions on all three fronts that say, if I would have had more information, I would never have chosen that. I would never have chosen an abortion. I would never have chosen adoption. I would have realized I never would have been able to parent. And it's been such a struggle. Like that's that idea of the quote unquote choice buffet, when I kind of joke about that, the idea of limiting abortion, there's so much talk about that. We're a pro-education program. So we meet women after they've decided to carry to term. And so some, some people like really push me, but yeah, but what are you really? And I'm like, Nope, we're pro-education. Like that world is not a world that we step into because the moms we meet are establishing prenatal care and are now considering adoption or parenting. And regardless, if she's a married woman who's 35, I can help her with her parenting plan. Like we should be having this conversation with all moms. But the assumption that we can just mess with the choice buffet and not have effects downstream it's ludicrous. Like we have to be aware of the fact that if you start shifting around what women are able to access, and again, education and access, you're going to see ramifications downstream on those women and on the children and on families in general. And so I get really frustrated when there's a real cut and dry response to any of that issue, because I don't think it's just anything. I think it's a huge issue. and It's got lifelong implications for everyone involved. And we haven't even talked about birth fathers and how that can add to the whole dynamic as well. So I think it's really important with everything that's happening in our country. It's one of the reasons that I've been visiting Capitol Hill for the last nine years, trying to get money upstream to help families and moms through this time, because it is essential. There was some st a study that was done by the Congressional Coalition on Adoption because they found that of unplanned pregnancies, which are now still 45% of pregnancies are still unplanned, just less than half will have an abortion, just less than half will parent, and less than 1% will choose adoption. And they wanted to know why that statistic was so low for adoption. And they actually asked over a thousand people, like, where would you go for adoption information in an unintended pregnancy? Where would you tell a friend to go? And the number one place they said was the internet. And then they asked where the least trustworthy place would be. And then they were said the internet. <laughs> so they were going where they don't trust. And then they said, where would the most trustworthy place be to get adoption information? And 93%, the highest statistic in the whole study said hospitals and healthcare, and there's nothing there. The only place to get adoption information is through professionals that have skin in the game. So whether or not they are coercive or not, they can be perceived as coercive. So how do you get the education without feeling like maybe it's being packaged to sway your decision? And that's where hopefully we come in with the family to family support network. Yeah. I mean, as I think about our episode and we have it, we've had an episode on this, but um, mm -hmm. knew a lot about like crisis pregnancy centers, mm -hmm. like packaging 
that's like kind of what they do. They package abortion so that you don't want to make that choice. And then they give you some diapers. So like mm-hmm. if you decide to, to continue the pregnancy and parent that, that you have some diapers. <laughs> like that's all you need. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, we, we call it the back room. They all three have a back room. And so the Planned Parenthood has a back room that offers abortions. The Crisis Pregnancy Center has a back room full of layettes. And the adoption agency has a back room full of adoptive parents. So we kind of joke we want to be in the lobby. Like, can I be in front of these, you know, to, to not, because I don't have skin in the game. I, I, I don't know how many moms I've said to, I don't care what you pick. I just want you to be successful. And so when I look at this in the space of parenting and adoption, it's just, it's essential that there's a safe space that can talk about all the, the good, the bad, and the ugly for all of that. We don't want to coerce them by saying, here, you can have a diaper or look at this adoptive family. They'll take your kid to Disneyland. Like, no, we got to be really honest and authentic about what these choices look like through parenting and adoption. So for our listeners who are maybe like, I, I want to be in the lobby too, you know, here you have the statistic that says, hey, you know, 93% are like the trusted place is your hospital. And obviously, as much as we would want you everywhere, that unfortunately isn't the reality right now. So here we have a, a bunch of listeners who, who could be that space in the lobby. Mm-hmm. And what can they say? What can they do? How do they have these what communication tips do you have for our listeners who who want to be in the lobby and have conversations that are more patient-centered about adoption or whatever parenting option they may choose? That's a great question. A couple questions that I often ask, I ask questions like, what are you most worried about when you think about this pregnancy? What about family members that are going to be able to help you? What about, have you considered asking someone else to parent, maybe making an adoption plan? So we often talk about you have choosing to parent or choosing someone else to parent. And it, cause sometimes you'll say adoption and they're like, I could never give up my baby and they shut down. So that's the time to say, okay, so you know about adoption. Tell me what you know. And they could tell you all accurate information. And you're like, okay, you understand adoption. You understand openness. You understand choosing a family and the new kind of model of adoption to a certain extent, as opposed to, well, I could never not see my baby again, you know, and that misunderstanding of like, okay, well, let's, where can I send you to get good ethical information? Now, the hardest part, and I love how you said, we love you everywhere. I still dream of being everywhere. So this network concept, because we want you to have ethical adoption resources tethered and the ACOG guidelines say that you should be able to refer patients to ethical adoption agencies that are licensed, which right now we have so many people that are offering adoption resources that aren't licensed. We have consultants, we have facilitators, we have agencies that may or may not be licensed. Like we want to make sure that they're going to ethical resources. And I remember the first time I read that was probably 15 years ago. And I was like, there's, you can't fulfill the ethical guidelines for adoption as a physician if you don't have a network around you. And I've had people flat out say to me, oh, I don't need your program because we just use Catholic charities. Uh, yeah, there's some good options. Like she may want to use Catholic charities. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, you know, and not to speak bad about Catholic charities, I'm just saying like, just because you have a quote unquote go-to 
doesn't mean that you have resources for a mom to be empowered to make a decision. And I think that's what I hear from physicians and even sometimes nurses like, oh, I just have this one agency I call or, oh, I know this person and they're an adoptive parent. So I call them and they tell me and connect me with a counselor. Like we want it to be more intentional and not just whatever we can kind of make up in the moment, because that in it of itself gives a message to your patients. It's not a good option. <laughs> I mean, if they ask you for adoption information and you're like, I don't know. No one ever wants to do that. (laughs) You know, then they're going to be like, okay, well, I guess I'm bad for even approaching this, you know? So how do we make sure that they can get the information and make sure it's not candy coated? You know, adoptees are four times more likely to commit suicide. Have we talked about that? Adoption competence therapists are key for kids that are being raised in adoptive families. Like we also need to make sure we're being honest with the loss that that child's going to go through. So can you talk more about the internet? So you said that the internet is where most people go and also where most people Mm -hmm. don't trust, but also that it seemed like from other things that you said that people are connecting maybe to find parents Mm -hmm. for their child. So can you talk about what that looks like? Yeah, I can. So I have huge concerns with the internet when you start talking about adoption. So It's a whole other Oprah. And my concerns are that it's very difficult to find out what is authentic on the internet, how people are representing themselves, what kind of training they've had. My fear is that there are moms out there that are getting worried about parenting and they just go on the internet to see if they can quote unquote find a family for this baby. We know that families are being encouraged to find their own women considering adoption to You know, I'll hear people say, oh, I made these little business cards with our picture on it and I'm dropping it off at OB offices. And I'm like, no, like you should not be match.coming yourself out there so that a mom can maybe find you. I mean, I've heard people putting stuff up on boards at the King Supers and trying to connect with anyone and everyone online, letting them know, hey, everyone, we're, we're hoping to adopt. So if you hear of anyone that's pregnant and I just look at that and think, How is that empowering to that patient? Because she might find somebody like that's not, you're making a decision for a lifetime with something you're meeting through the internet. So I just get really concerned. I think that that's one of the reasons I feel so passionate about resources being tethered to hospitals, because if she as a patient chooses to parent, I want to make sure she feels supported. And all of a sudden, everyone's not just gone. I don't want her threatened that she has to pay back medical bills, which is happening around the country, where some families are leveraging the fact, attorneys agencies are leveraging the fact that you have paid, this family's paid money for this, and now you need to give them that baby. And that's never okay. I want to make sure she has parenting resources. So when she leaves the hospital, if she does choose to parent, she's successful um, and she's not feeling trapped. And that's why another reason we want to meet them early on so they don't feel they have to have the family at the hospital, that they can choose to place that child when the baby's five days old, 10 days old, two months old. You know, my son, one of my children came home a little older and that's okay. A mom can make that decision, but often she's told, oh no, as soon as possible, but she needs to be at a place she's comfortable with making that adoption plan, whatever that needs to look like for her. So when we go out into the adoption world, on the internet, it's like anything on the internet where the decision is also worth anywhere from forty to $100,000. So I have a friend of mine who paid $120,000 and that's what she went through to bring her son home. 
And it was just people with their hands out. These people matched her. These people wanted money from this. These people, she had to pay for this. Or you know what? If you don't pay it, I don't know that she's going to go ahead and go through with it. So there's all kinds of people that are being taken advantage of. And that was, you know, we've we've talked kind of offline about a new house bill that I've been working on. And that's where the bill came from, was a specific situation in Congressman Smucker's office where one of his staff members had gone through an adoption placement and they, it had fallen through. They had spent all this money in this situation with this mom and she has every right to parent after that, but it means their adoption arrangement and how it all came to be could be two, three times more expensive because they've been pouring money into these situations that she may or may not have received good counseling. So really both sides get victimized, the, the family that's hoping to adopt and that mom that's considering adoption. Can you share more about this bill? Sure. So it's HR 3690. It's called Improving Adoption Outcomes and Affordability. It was presented and introduced in July of 2019 by Congressman Smucker's office. He's a Republican from Pennsylvania. And we now also has two co-sponsors that are Democrats, which means it's bipartisan, which makes me giddy because I love the fact everyone can see benefits for this. This is the first bill that is ever focused on women considering adoption and providing funding and services for them. So they would receive mental health services, substance use treatment for substance use disorder, mental health treatment or um, support after a placement. So actually having post-placement support. In my belief, it needs to be tethered to healthcare because that adoption may take place in Denver and that family or the adoption professional may be from Florida. And how is she going to get post-placement counseling? So if she's, if it's tethered to the hospital, it's accessible to her. So it has, obviously the, the frosting on the bill is that it also provides training for hospitals and healthcare to be able to navigate the complexities of adoption before, during, and after delivery. And so I was thrilled. I didn't find out about it till November of last year, but have been working with the offices now for almost a year, trying to, again, really focus this in on patients considering adoption and how to best step into this space between parenting and adoption to undergird the process for these families. For our listeners who are like, man, I want to get my hands on this training. I want to know these things. How can they get that training? How can they access you or programs like you? Yeah, so we have a couple things that we do. So we do obviously webinars with the in the age of COVID. We still do webinars where we're talking with professionals about adoption specifically. Um, when we're talking about our hospital program, you had talked about at some point doing a more comprehensive discussion about what we call the unique families program. And that is what we go in and train hospitals on. And that is a model of neutral compassionate care, not just around women considering adoption but others that also have what we call dual family care. And dual family care means the woman giving birth. It's not planning on on caring for the child. So surrogacy would be another example. Incarcerated patients, how do we empower them and the person taking the child from the hospital, things like that. Substance use disorder treatment, how do we make sure that whoever's taking that child home to care for them has that dual family care within the hospital. So that is a program that comes in similar to Resolve Through Sharing or Baby Friendly, where we come in and actually train the whole staff because it's only one person that needs to put their foot in their mouth to do damage. <laughs> so we'd like try to be as comprehensive as possible. And we teach all of that through the template of adoption and this model of not non-traditional mom, dad, baby, but 
situations where the outcome is going to look a little different and we provide that flexibility, infrastructure, workflow policy so it's no longer just staff dependent. The policies and procedures are in place so that the hospital, it's run the same on Tuesday as it does on Friday, which as we talked about is super important. You don't want to have someone going through really difficult times at the hospital and think, boy, I really hope so-and-so was on that night because she's really good with that. (laughs) You know, we don't want it to be like that. We want everybody to be really good with that. I mean, this training sounds absolutely amazing and absolutely I'm hopeful that we can have another episode where we talk about all the things that you just talked about. But in the meantime, how can folks find you? Great question. So our website is familytofamilysupport.org and it's T-O, not a number two, familytofamilysupport.org. And you'll see the Unique Families program on there. You'll also see blogs that I post that I've written that kind of help you reframe There's a blog post on there that talks about the need um, around organ donation and how we have a third party involved with organ donation. So why don't we with adoption? When you talk about that situation where you have to bring in a neutral party. So I have some different blog posts there that you can read and kind of see how we reframe the thinking. Also, past radio shows are on there. So if you want to hear about baby scoop or about foster care, about trauma-informed parenting, the impact of trauma on foster kids, et cetera, like all of that is on our website as well. So there's lots of good education. And then you can also be watching for free webinars that we put on there to help raise awareness around these topics. So for our clinicians who are listening today, and maybe they're going to go to work tomorrow and they don't have time to listen to or look at some of these resources yet. What's like the one takeaway that you've talked about that you would want them to start doing right away? I think updating your language, because I think our language drives so much of our thinking that if you're intentionally using words like parenting plan, adoption plan, you know, avoiding keeping the baby or giving up, you're going to first of all, start hearing that language. And Nicole, you had mentioned that we, before we talked, you know, that, that you start hearing it. And once you kind of reframe things, you'll start kind of queuing up when you have those conversations or when you're watching TV, et cetera. So I think that's probably the main thing that the second part to that would be brainstorming what you have in place for these women facing unintended pregnancies. Like what are you offering around parenting plans? Do you have some solid ethical resources in your community that you can say, if you want to look at adoption, I trust this counselor to sit with you. And we can obviously help with that too. The hard, some of the hardest things is a lot of agencies that are national have a very different flavor office by office. And that can be a little bit tricky, but you know, we certainly have a lot of resources too at family to family support.org where you can actually kind of dive into some more of those resources. Our hope would be that that's all a piece that would go with case managers or social workers at the hospital. That's another place they can reach out to. So if your clinicians are saying, I don't feel like I have a really good list of resources around adoption to reach out to the social worker case manager at the hospital and ask them, who have you worked with? Who do you trust? You know, what's your list look like? And start brainstorming around those resources. Because again, education access, that's what's going to help them make good decisions. I want to talk a little bit more about making sure that you're aligned with someone who's doing ethical counseling, because I think that is Mm -hmm. absolutely, absolutely critical to this piece. So what are maybe some questions that say I'm a clinician and I'm like, hey, I just want to double check this place. You know, I want to make sure that that they, they are ethical and that things are aligning correctly. What are some questions that maybe if you were to call and ask them that they could ask you know, almost to kind of pass this like sniff test or 
Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was laughing at sniff tests. That just sounds funny. Um, couple different things I'd be looking for. One, I would be asking them about their counseling. Like what kind of counseling do they offer to women considering adoption? I would ask them about partnerships they have with women that are looking at parenting and what resources they have that are available to them. I would be checking out their website. I'd be looking at the language on the website. I would be looking at what resources are listed on the website. You know, do they look like they're offering that neutral space for her to explore um, her options? I would absolutely be looking to see what their post-placement support looks like. That should be lifelong counseling. There should not be any limit to that. And I've watched agencies literally ask adoptive families like, so how many hours of counseling do you want to pay for for her? And they're like, I don't know. Well, that should be infinite. It shouldn't matter. That should be part of the package is that that agency is going to walk that path with her. We always talk about it being there's the wedding and then there's the marriage. And the marriage is a lifelong process, hopefully, that whole that that life of that relationship, you guys are just seeing the wedding. And so what are they doing with the families to help that marriage go smoothly? I would love to see more training with adoptive families. What kind of training are they doing? Are they talking about the trauma and loss of infant adoption, trauma-informed parenting? Um, Because again, even though I brought my kiddos home from the very first day of their lives, that doesn't mean that there was not loss. And we know that they're also impacted by cortisol and pregnancy. So we see a lot of trends with kids that have been placed as infants that no one had talked to us about. I didn't learn about it till my kids were a little older and I was so angry. I was like, I needed to know this. So those are all some questions that you could ask to find out, do they have these tools and are they offering this to their families? And what are some red flags? Like if you see this, if you hear this, what are, what should we be watching for? I ask this because I'm like, okay, I'm going to call and they're going to tell me this stuff. And then I'm like, okay, well now I, you know, I'm feeling not very confident in this information. So yeah, what, what are the red flags? Yeah. I think one of the things you can also be looking for that's a red flag is asking them, you know, about their like, tell me about your successful placements. What does that look like to you? And we believe that if there's really good choice counseling going on, there's only going to be an adoption plan, maybe one in five times, maybe 20% of women considering adoption will choose adoption. Now, if they're supporting women and they're saying, oh yeah, 75% of our, of our clients go through adoptions, that's too high. (laughs) Really about one in four, one in five is typical if they have the options and the parenting resources, et cetera. And so that's something else that I would I would ask and I would watch for because if they're touting a bunch of completed adoptions, that's just weddings. That doesn't say the marriage went well. And so I think that's really what you're teasing out from them is tell me about the lifelong support you offer. And it's not just about getting people matched. If they're bragging about a short wait time to adoptive families, that's concerning because a lot of times that has to do with the money that that family is going to be willing to put forward. The more money they spend, often the shorter the wait. And that's just the market. We know there's about 36 families waiting for every infant that's placed right now. And so needless to say, the competition's high, and that's the making for a lot of financial opportunists out there. Yeah, thank you for that. Because I think, you know, naturally like, oh, a high placement? Okay, great. (laughs) Right, right. Well, and the funny thing is, is sometimes they'll say, well, if you want to talk to a a mom that parented and a mom that chose adoption, they can tell you, well, I'm not going to choose someone 
that has a beef with my agency. I'm not going to choose. I'm going to put my best foot forward, right? So even sometimes that is really hard to read because they're going to ask the people that sing their praises to meet with you. <laughs> and then you're like, wow, this is amazing. So it's it's marketing. It's really hard when you really dig down into it because we know with so few women choosing adoption, we know right now, right around 18,000 adoptions happen in the country on average a year. That's not a lot for infant adoption, especially when you think about one in six couples going through infertility. So it's it's the makings of a pretty awful unethical market if we don't get somebody that's trying to at least keep an eye on things. And I just keep saying these babies are all being born somewhere. So if doctors know what's ethical, if hospitals know what's ethical, once we had our program in place at Parker Adventist, the unethical adoption agencies stopped having women deliver at our hospital because they were like, oh, shoot, (laughs) they're asking hard questions that, you know, they're seeing that there's money that's being spent that's not okay things like that. So, I mean, in Colorado, only pregnancy-related expenses are okay. And that's something every clinician should look at their state and ask, you know, look to see in adoption what kind of bills can really be paid. There should not be, oh, I'm giving her $10,000 to quote-unquote get back on her feet. And there are states that allow that. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like I could ask you a lot of things, but I also don't want it to be a two-hour-long episode. (laughs) I mean, I don't care about that. (laughs) I could talk about this stuff for forever. So you guys are definitely going to have to cut me off. (laughs) I I mean, you guys have asked such, you guys have asked such good questions. I feel like, I mean, I feel like a lot of the stuff we talked about unethical placements. We talked about post-placement care. We talked about language, marketing. I mean, you guys have hit a lot of the stuff that keeps me up at night the standardized piece of what we hope to do that, that there would be, okay, she's choosing to have an abortion. She contacts her doctor, goes to Planned Parenthood. She doesn't know what to do, but she doesn't want to do that. Well, then she goes to family to family support network. Like we want to be that common so that there's just a place to go to have this next step from, I don't want to, I'm going to carry the term, but now what do I do? And so that's the piece of this bill being tethered to healthcare there's no Yelp for adoption. What you said about the sniff test, like I can tell you about Thai noodles down the corner, but I can't tell you about the adoption place that pops up first on Google. So Rebecca, I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts that you would like to add before we end today? Well, I just want to thank you for having me on and discussing this with me. And, you know, I know how often I reach out to hospitals and say, you know, you really need this training and we really want to empower your doctors and your nurses. And they honestly kind of shrug like, you know, they haven't really asked for it. We don't think there's really an issue. And I think empowering your listeners to just be advocates for education around this area to know that we don't want patients leaving saying, I wouldn't have done this if I would have known X, Y, Z. We want them to feel at peace with the decisions they're making. We want them to feel empowered and safe to explore their options. And until we have the voices from within the healthcare professions stepping forward and saying, we didn't get this in our rotations. We didn't get this in nursing school. We were not getting the information that we need to address these families that are coming through our door, we're just not going to have this addressed until those voices come forward. So I just would encourage you, as I mentioned, family to family support.org. There's information about the house bill on there because 
when you look at the house bill, I mean, who should really pay for this? Because we're doing so much makeup education and having to really, I mean, we'd love to have this in academia, but we're really having to back up and catch up all of us and get us all on the same page for this new dynamic of the wedding and the funeral in the same room. You know, who should pay for that? And so that's the beauty of the federal funding and the potential standardized care and model around the hospitals with our HR 3690, it really could change everything because it would empower you guys to better serve your patients. It would better outcomes for your patients and for the children that they're delivering and the families that are welcoming them home. So I just want to thank you guys for helping raise awareness for this need. And then hopefully we'll hear the echo from healthcare saying it's not okay for us not to know. We need the tools. We need the scripting. We need to be able to care for these patients. Yes, thank you. This was a roller coaster of an episode, but I I can't wait to share it with our listeners. This was much needed. Thanks. Well, thanks for having me. I look forward to future shows to be able to share. There's so many facets to this when you look through the, the lens of unique family care. So I look forward to it. Thank you. We'll talk soon. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. <laughs>